So I'd like to make a quick note about some of uh, my main sources that I used in preparing for this. So I used two commentaries on the book of Philippians. One was the Word Biblical Commentary on Philippians by Gerald Hawthorne, and another one was uh, by Moises Silva, Baker Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament. And then I used uh, a message by Pastor Steve, Sermon 13 in the Philippians series, and I did that because this morning uh, we are going to be covering Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So some of you might be wondering, well, why are we doing that since he just you know, recently uh, taught a sermon on that? So my reasons are because it's going to be a little bit different because for about the first three um, main points, I'm just going to be responding to basically an attack on the Word of God. So I'm going to respond to that. And then after that, instead of uh, expositing these passages, as Pastor Steve did, I'm, I'm going to just reflect on some blessings that I see in these passages. Okay, so that's my plan. Let's go ahead and read uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So some people see a problem in these verses. And based off of this problem, they have actually created a theory which ends up attacking the word of God. And the problem they see has to do with verse 2. If we look at verse 2, it says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. And as Pastor Steve told us, that is some strong language being used there. Dogs and evil workers, the mutilation. But such language was not being used previous to that. And some people think that that's a problem, that Paul changed his tone. Some people think, well, Paul shouldn't have changed his tone so dramatically. Paul wouldn't have changed his tone so dramatically. If we look at chapter 1, starting at verse 3, we can get an idea of some of the positive tone that there's been uh, in the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day unto now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then going to chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And then the change in tone, beware of dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. So some people think that the change in tone is a problem. So the significance of the problem um, I kind of I'm, I like to refer to it as the error of two becoming one, and I will go ahead and quote from uh, Hawthorne's commentary. But before I do that, let me explain why I call it the error of two becoming one. So when we think of the Book of Philippians, we think of it as always being one, because Paul wrote the Book of Philippians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gave it to us. Just like this. Of course, the chapter and verse divisions 
uh, were not put there by Paul, but Paul wrote the scriptures like this. Some people, however, would say that that's not the case. Some people would say that two became one, that originally Paul had written two shorter letters and that some other person, some editor down the line decided to take these writings and put them together uh, to create the letter to the Philippians that we have now. And some people would even say that maybe there were three smaller letters that were put together to become this letter of Philippians. And Pastor Steve did mention this uh, in his intro to the series on Philippians. So ultimately, this is significant because it becomes an attack on the Word of God. Now there might be some believers who think that it's possible that we receive the book of Philippians in that way, but I do know that there are many who would attack the Word of God based off of this. In fact, I can tell you that I have personal experience uh, with a friend of mine who did that very thing. I was talking to him about the Lord, and he rejected Christ in front of me. He said, Jesus is not the Christ. And when I shared to him from the book of Philippians about the things that are said there about Christ, uh, he said, well, no, because originally it was, the book of Philippians was uh, two or three shorter letters, and it became one letter. So... I don't know how many people are actually affected by this, but uh, since my friend was, I thought I would go ahead and speak on it today. So um, this is not a problem. The change in tone in verse 2 is not a problem, and I'd like to share with you three reasons why it's not a problem. Reason number one is there's no physical evidence of shorter versions of the book of Philippians. There's no physical evidence of shorter versions of the book of Philippians. Moises Silva's commentary says, In spite of its relative popularity, this literary reconstruction labors under enormous difficulties. In the first place, no external textual evidence can be adduced in its favor. The textual attestation for Philippians is rich and early. So he's saying there's no external textual evidence of this. So how can two become one if there's no evidence of there ever being two? There's no evidence of there ever being three. We don't have physical manuscripts of shorter uh, letters to the book of Philippians. That's reason number one. Reason number two. Editing is an illogical solution if tone in verse two is a problem. Editing is an illogical solution if the tone in verse two is a problem. Moises Silva says the strongest evidence for the theory is the abruptness of chapter 3, verse 1 to to verse 2. But this is a two-edged sword. What would lead an editor to incorporate a separate document at such an awkward point? In other words, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So if it's a problem for Paul to change his tone so dramatically going from verse 1 to verse 2 then it should also be a problem for an editor to do the same thing. Why should an editor say, we're going to make this uh, hard, we're going to have this harsh language in verse 2 when it wasn't like that before that? It doesn't make sense. So if it's a problem for Paul, it would be a problem for an editor. Therefore, editing is an illogical solution. And ultimately, it really isn't a problem. It doesn't need a solution. Um, Hawthorne says, Compilation theories therefore solve nothing. 
they merely shift the problem of order and organization from Paul to an unknown editor and raise questions impossible to answer. Why should three original letters be combined at all? Were these earlier letters complete letters with salutations and signatures or merely fragments? If they were complete letters, why were they not allowed to stand without modification, since apparently length was not a criterion for preservation? If they were complete letters, what right did any editor have to eliminate their prescripts and postscripts from the beginning of its manuscript history that there has been only one canonical letter to the Philippians? Unquote. Okay, there's one more reason I'd like to share with you, and that is because the change in tone that we see in verse 2 is consistent with Paul's writing elsewhere. He changes tone and style in similar ways elsewhere. And uh, Hawthorne says, There is certainly a disjointedness about Philippians. And a little bit later he says, But this should not be surprising in a personal, almost conversational letter written by a man accustomed to abrupt shifts in style. And he gives us two sections where Paul had some changes in style. One of them is in Romans 16, starting in verse 16. Romans 16, starting in verse 16 and going to verse 19. It starts off with one tone and then changes a little bit. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And now it's going to start to change a little bit. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. Okay, and then he also offers 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And now here it's going to change style and tone. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So if Paul is used to changing his style, his way of writing in these other scriptures, and we know that that's the case, then why should we think that it's a problem for him to do the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. There is no problem with it. And the whole idea of two becoming one, there's no uh, foundation for this theory. Okay, now I would like to go ahead and reflect on some blessings that I see in these scriptures. We know from Second Timothy that all scripture is profitable So I just want to share with you some ways in which I see this as a profitable section of Scripture. I'm going to go ahead and read the verses again. Chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, 
Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. One way in which I see this as a blessing is that it safeguards the importance of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Which is a very important doctrine. And when Pastor Steve was talking about this, he mentioned that there are three descriptions for those who teach salvation by works. Dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. He's saying that uh, these people are teaching salvation by works. And there are three descriptions for the true people of God who are the spiritual circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God in truth as opposed to their error, who rejoiced in Jesus Christ instead of what was meant to point to Christ, who have no confidence in the flesh as opposed to those who glory in their mark in the flesh. So it is contrasting true believers with false believers, the true message of God with the false message of God, the false message of God, false message of God doesn't even make sense. True message with the false message. The false message is salvation by works. And the true message is that we are saved by Christ alone, by faith in Christ alone. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we have basically the same topic being addressed. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You see that here Paul is clearly saying that the people who are preaching about circumcision, that they are preaching that they... Uh, that you can be justified by the law, and that is uh, unbiblical, and it's condemned by the Apostle Paul. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 9, it says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this is very important because it has to do with our standing before God. We are not saved by faith plus works, and certainly not by works. It's not faith plus works because it's not Christ plus us. It's faith alone because it is Christ alone. Christ is the Savior, and that's very important for us, and that's very important for the health of the church. So that's a blessing I see here in this passage. Another blessing I see is that we have warnings here. Beware, beware, beware. Those are warnings. And we do know that warnings from God are beneficial. And we can see that in Psalms 19, verse 7 through 11. 
And I have here just some portions from that section of Scripture to give us the idea. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And I, I went ahead and I put that phrase, by them is your servant warned in all uppercase letters, to emphasize that. This section of scripture is saying that the law of the Lord is great. The commandments and the rules of the Lord are great. It's all about that. And it's talking about the benefits of the commandments of the Lord. So when it says, by them is your servant warned, this is implied to be another benefit of the commandments of the Lord. So that means that warnings are a positive thing. And we can see that here in the scriptures. And we do know that warnings are positive because we would be warning children, our children or any children that we may be around, if we saw that they were in any danger, we would certainly warn them because we want what is best for them. So, by way of application, since we know that warnings are expressions of the love of God for His people and that they are positive things, I'd like to ask, do we love our brethren enough to give them important warnings? The Apostle Paul, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. And here in the scriptures, Paul has been warning the church. So would we also follow in his steps? And do we love our brethren enough to give them important warnings if they're following into some doctrinal error or maybe sin or they're just making some foolish decisions with their life? Would we speak up? Do we know them well enough to do so? We have uh, obviously a lot of people here at this church And we don't always know everybody, um, but it's our responsibility to reach out to them and to find out if they're doing well and try to help them. Um, But a lot of times it's very easy for us just to ignore people and to keep people at arm's distance. And it could be sometimes that you could be here for many years and there could be someone that you just still really don't know. And I think that we should take the time to know, to get to know people, so that we we can uh, show them the love of God. Also, we know that there are people um, who were coming to this church for a while, and they haven't been here in quite a while. And are we praying for them, and are we reaching out to them, and are we we, uh, doing what we can to show the love of God to them? We cannot give them important warnings if we are not even doing those basic things. Okay, another uh, blessing that I see in here is where it says safety. there is safety in rejoicing in the Lord. In verse 1 it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So I thought that was a really amazing idea that it's safe to rejoice in the Lord. In Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which is online, it defines the word rejoice. It says that rejoice means to experience joy and gladness in a high degree, to be exhilarated with lively and pleasurable sensations, to exult. And then there are some scriptures here that were used to back up Webster's uh, definition of that. He mentions uh, Proverbs 29.2 and Psalm 9.14. 
So we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. We're supposed to have gladness, to be exhilarated. We're supposed to exult in the Lord. And I thought this was amazing because we know that we're required to give thanks to the Lord and that we owe Christ joyful worship. The scriptures say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 21, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Clearly, Paul was very zealous for the Lord and had had great love for the Lord. And I don't know if we always do that, but I did encounter a brother from our Spanish church here who was a good example to me of that because I can remember him speaking to me. He said, Brother, he said, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, he told me. And that was inspiring and convicting. But we are supposed to be rejoicing in the Lord. And even though we owe that to Christ and to God and we're required to do that, Paul appeals to the Philippians' safety in telling, because he says it's safe to rejoice in the Lord Jesus. And we know that when we rejoice, it has to do with our hearts, and that our heart is very important. The scriptures say that before we came to Christ, we had a heart of stone, and then the Holy Spirit changed our heart to a heart of flesh, and it was only then that we could then accept Christ and believe in Christ. So our hearts are very important. If we are rejoicing something that is dangerous, then that is very bad, and we wouldn't need to pray for anyone that we see rejoicing in error and sin. But if we are rejoicing in the Lord, then there's great safety in that because we're not going to, it's going to be more difficult for us to turn away from the Lord if we are constantly rejoicing in Him and rejoicing in His message. And I think that when we compare Philippians 3.1 with Philippians 3.3, that it's implied that it's saying that it's safe to rejoice in the work of Christ as opposed to any work of our own. Because in Philippians 3.1, it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then the next verse is talking about the dogs and all their false message of being saved by works. And then verse 3, we can see that there's the word rejoice in there again. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus So that seems to me part of the context. But I don't think it's limited to that. I think that it's saying to rejoice in the Lord for all who he is and for all that he's done. We're to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John Gill said that there are different reasons to rejoice in the Lord, such as the greatness of his person, he being in the form of God and equal to him. And John Gill also said we're to rejoice that Christ is able to save his to the uttermost by his obedience and death. So we have many reasons to rejoice in the Lord, and um, I found this whole concept very beneficial, and it would be wonderful for us to do that, to be asking ourselves, are we rejoicing in the Lord, and to do our best to do that. And I wanted to end by quoting this hymn, which says, Christ of all my hopes, the ground, Christ the spring of all my joy. Thank you.